I'm Katie. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. Thanks so much for being here. I started the podcast back in February 2022 when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer called hobnail. And it was a way to keep my close friends and family up to date with my diagnosis and treatment. And that's evolved into what is now season three, where each week it's me plus a guest discussing all things about cancer. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. I'm opening the new season with a brilliant chat with a brilliant man. He's the researcher at the Institute for Cancer Research, Dr. Paul Hwang. And I introduce him more formally in the chat. But what you should probably know is that he literally is my man. I mean, he studies and understands everything about the type of cancer that I have, the type of mutating gene that I have, and the type of treatment that I'm on. So it was just a real privilege to actually talk to someone who looks at this stuff in a lab and is part of the decisions that get made about the treatment and how people like me who have a mutating gene are treated on drugs like the drug that I take, targeted treatment. In my case, that's on Trectinib. It was just so eye-opening to talk to him and kind of surreal, really, because here's a guy that knows everything about what my life looks like from the cancer science perspective. And as you probably know by now, I'm a bit of a natural optimist. I'm also really hopeful and really intrigued about the future of the treatment and what that looks like and and what's coming down the road. I've got some quite interesting access because there's some Facebook groups that I've joined. The one in particular that's really informative is for the Ross Wonders. But I'm sure that for anyone else with a different type of gene mutation, there are different Facebook groups. And I find them really interesting and really helpful, not just because people share their experiences, whether that's symptoms or side effects or conversations with oncologists, but also they have access to, yeah, the clinical trials that are taking place. That's really interesting. If I kind of gather up that information and then I've got other people at my fingertips, like my oncologists and the team at the Royal Marsden, and people like Dr. Paul Huang at the Institute of Cancer Research. And what I hope is that, yeah, that access that I have can help other people who are listening as well. So, yeah, I hope that you find this as informative and as interesting and inspiring as I did. I'm really excited today to be talking to a very clever man, a very, very clever man, <laughs> Dr. Paul Huang, who is leader of the Molecular and Systems Oncology team in the Division of Molecular Pathology at the Institute of Cancer Research. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today on Talking with Cancer. Thanks, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's really nice to have you. And actually, I feel quite privileged because we had a little private chat, didn't we? Off mic, I don't know, three or four weeks ago or maybe more. And that was amazing. You gave me an hour of your time just to chat about what you know. Do you often do that with cancer patients? Yeah, I think it's a two-way process. I mean, you know, uh, as you said, you 
I share a lot with you. You learned from the process, but I also gain a lot from talking to patients as well. And it puts things into perspective when we work in the lab and why we do what we do. Okay, that's really good to know. So it's a two-way relationship, so we can learn from each other. Absolutely. That's, that's yeah. good. So I've introduced you in, a, in the formal way, what it says on the website, but can you just break that down a bit? <laughs> yeah, Tell us sure. a bit more about what that means, a bit about your background and why you chose that line of research. Yeah, sure. So I'm a scientist at the Institute of Cancer Research, as you mentioned, and uh, my focus really is to understand why some patients respond to drugs and, and why some patients don't. Particularly, we focus on rare cancers, which, um, as Katie, you're aware, cancers, which uh, are basically, it's a technical term, less than six patients per 100,000 in the population. Mm -hmm. So that in the UK accounts to about any cancer type where there's less than 4,000 patients a year. And it's very complex range of diseases. There are more than 200 different rare cancer types, but they represent about 20% of all cancers diagnosed every year. So even though individually they're you know, pretty small subsets, collectively they're actually a huge proportion of patients. And so, you know, we study, I guess, drug resistance in a number of different ways. One is trying to understand, as I said, why and how do we then tackle drug resistance in these patients so that we can achieve durable long-term responses. But another area of interest really is to say, can we say upfront by developing various diagnostic tests, which patients are going to respond to drug A or which patients are not, and then would they be would they be able to then receive an alternative drug instead? So they don't go through the all the challenges of you know taking a drug, all the side effects uh, when a drug is not likely to work. So those are the two main areas that we work on in the lab. Can I just ask on that? So is there a difference between a patient that doesn't respond at all to a drug and a patient that the longevity at which the drug will work varies? Are there two studies in those instances? Yeah, so basically we, I guess, separate or categorize these into two different types of classes of resistance. One is what we call primary or intrinsic resistance. So basically the patient or the tumor, you know, doesn't really, doesn't respond to the drug at all. But there is a second category, which is what we call secondary or acquired resistance, where the patients are exposed to the drug and the tumors do respond. And, and you're right, the, the duration of response varies between patients, and that's not something that's completely understood. But what happens over time is then tumors become resistant to the drug uh, with long-term exposure, and that's what we call secondary resistance. So there are two different classes. I see. So could the secondary resistance occur due to environment in the same way that a gene might get turned on or or not? I think it's, uh, again, these are complex series of events. There are different types of ways in which cancer cell becomes uh, resistant. Some of it might be related to the gene that the drug is targeting itself. So the gene may acquire further mutations, for instance, that make it less effect, makes the drug less effective in binding to the target. But there are also, as you said, a potential alternative mechanisms, some of which may be alternative genes that get turned on that uh, allows us, the cell to survive in the presence of the drug. Or as you said, you know, environmental factors, for example, inflammation is now well studied that you know various inflammatory signals may provide survival signals to cancer cells as well in the presence of drugs 
Okay, so in, in the same way that a kind of a gene might get turned on in the first place, a similar reaction could happen with the drug and how that works, potentially. Yeah, yeah. So I, so, I appreciate this is very complex. This is... Yeah, I kind of think of it as an uh, evolutionary process. So basically, you expose tumors to drugs, they undergo changes because this is a big stress on the cells, and they undergo changes to find ways to evolve to cope with living with the drug. And part of that process could be, as you said, uh, accumulating mutations. It could be turning on other things that protect it from the drug, but it's effectively evolving to be able to survive in the presence of the drug. And that's another way of looking at resistance. Why did you go into this, Paul? Why was this of interest to you? I think it's, in some ways, if you think about when this field really started, I guess almost 20 years now, it, it sounds like a bit like science fiction, right? That you can basically give a targeted drug to a patient and the tumors respond. I think really what really appealed to me is, you know, unlike some of the, I guess, classical chemotherapies that we still use in the clinic today, targeted therapies of precision medicine really draws a direct connection between our understanding of cancer biology to the effectiveness of the cancer drug. So just as an example, if a patient has a particular cancer-causing gene, and uh, we know that in, from the biology, if we shut down these cancer-causing genes, the cancer cells will die, then we can basically use this gene as a marker for selecting patients to give drugs targeting this gene. So it's a very direct causation, cause and effect type of relationship, which we never really had with chemotherapy. And so you know, being a lab researcher and a biologist, it's very attractive that, you know, if we if we can dig deep into the biology of cancer cells, we can find vulnerabilities for which we can then target with specific drugs. Now that I'm in this world that I particularly want to be, but I completely understand how fascinating it must be, how the body responds and behaves. And what's interesting, and I know this is something that the Institute of Cancer Research put out recently. Am I right when I say that now, or more and more, treatment of cancer is not about the organ, which is kind of what you've just been saying. It is, it's much more about that gene mutation. But what seems to be interesting, particularly with me, and maybe you're seeing this more, is that where you thought that gene mutation kind of what the type of cancer that you thought that gene mutation was responsible for, i.e. I have the ROS1 and that's seen in lung cancer, you are seeing that in other cancers. Is that is that happening more or is that still a very, very unusual case that I have ROS1 with thyroid? So I guess if we go back to the timeline or the history of precision oncology or precision medicine development of target therapies. I think historically, you are right in that some of the very early examples of many of these targeted drugs were very linked to a particular gene alteration, cancer gene alteration in a particular tumor type. And that was what it was for the first 15 years or so. You know, There were many approvals, but they were all very disease cancer type specific. And what we've seen actually interestingly over the past, I would say maybe four or five years is exactly what you alluded to is that obviously the same cancer genes may be mutated in multiple cancer types. So what we're seeing is drug approvals that are actually what we call cancer agnostic, cancer type agnostic. So it is based, you can actually give the patient a drug based on just the gene alteration, regardless of the cancer type that's in. So a very, I I say classical, but it only happened in the last three or four years. Classical example of that is the 
class of inhibitors known as the NTRAC inhibitor drugs. And these drugs are given to any patient who has an alteration in this gene and track regardless of what cancer type there is and so we are starting to see more and more of these with some of the other drug classes like the immune checkpoint inhibitors as well where you know it's not just for melanoma or lung cancer but you know if you have a particular type of gene pattern or mutational pattern in your in your cancer cells you are eligible for access to these drugs so i think we are getting there we're not 100% there yet but i think we're starting to think about these diseases as, if you will, baskets of diseases, yeah. uh, all driven by a single gene alteration or, or very related gene alterations rather than individual silos of cancer types. How many gene alterations are there? Oh, that's a million pound question. Okay. There are, I think we're we constantly learning. The, the challenge with many of these surveys is that, as you know, as you with with aging and also environmental you know things like uv radiation our bodies are constantly accumulating uh, mutation damage and repairing so they are constantly accumulating mutations and one of the challenges is that the vast majority of these mutations um, have no effect and this is what we call uh, passenger mutations but there are <laughs> they're just uh, along for the ride <laughs> they're just along for the ride yeah but there are obviously mutations that can cause cancer and they hit as you we talked about just now the cancer causing genes so the challenge really is to say identify which are the passengers and which are the drivers and i think the community is still working i mean they're obviously the the very obvious cases and you know you've you talked about ross and you know that's an obvious case where it's a clear cancer causing gene but there are a lot of signals within you know when you sequence cancer cells that um it's still not clear whether they're cancer causing genes or not so i think that's a very open question and the community is constantly finding new things all the time Okay, so just going back to rare cancers, is it rare cancer and a mutating driver gene doesn't necessarily go hand in hand, does it? Or are there rare types of breast cancer, for example, that, so how do the genes and the rare cancers, what's the link there? So there are cancers which are rare by definition. So these are, there are particular types of cancers where their incidence is just very low. But there are also molecular types of common cancers, like lung cancer, breast cancer, which are rare. So, you know, ELK uh, mutations, effusions in uh, lung cancer is a very small subset. Although there are a lot of lung cancer patients, it's a very small slice of the pie. To your question of, is there an intersection between mutations and rare? I think this is most obvious in the childhood cancer setting where many of the cancer types are driven by single alterations, single gene mutations or single gene fusions. And there it's very clear that these are the clear driver genes and you know somewhat recurrent as well and they lead to a, a number of different childhood cancers. Um, but at the same time, there are also uh, gene alterations that occur in very common cancer types. So like uh, the KRAS mutation is found in lung, pancreatic, and colorectal cancer. So I don't think, to your question, there is a direct link between rare and genetic alteration, but there are definitely subsets of rare cancers which are driven by specific gene mutations and alterations. Okay. 
sorry, because I know I've sort of said these are the questions I'm going to ask you. But That's actually, fine. as you're talking, it's so interesting. I've got so many more questions. But how often are rare cancers being discovered? That's another very good question. So at the moment, we say it's between 200 to 250 but they're constantly being discovered every day. The, the challenge, as you might imagine, with a rare cancer is that a typical GP, for instance, may see one rare cancer in their entire career. So how would you even know it's a rare cancer when you see it? So this is why it's very important if you're diagnosed with a rare cancer or you're, you know, if you're suspected to have a rare cancer, you'd be referred to a specialist center which has expertise and have treated high volumes of these sorts of patients so they know what to do what to look out for what to diagnose so that's the first point um, to the question of you know uh, how, how do you define what a new rare cancer how often that occurs i think the challenge is that we are getting very good at sequencing our tumors incredibly good at sequencing our tumors and every time we sequence our tumors we find new things and the, the question there is when we find something new whether it's a new fusion or a new uh, what we call a uh, entity will we consider that a new rare cancer and i think you know, this is why many rare cancer fields, you know, every couple of years, doctors come together and have what we call consensus discussions to reach a consensus whether something is a new entity, new cancer or not. And actually, this is governed by, um, we have a series for every disease type, World Health Organization comes with a a book basically that says these are all the diagnoses for that particular cancer type and it's only considered a new cancer type if it makes in, it into this book so there's enough evidence to convince the community that it is really a truly new and different cancer type and, and it makes it to this book for diagnosis so that's i guess the operational definition it's interesting because when I was told I had hobnail and it took quite a few weeks for them mm. to define the type of thyroid cancer that I had, which, you know, to understand what, what the diagnosis was, I was split. I felt two things. I felt like, oh, wow, look at me. I've got something really special and everyone's going to be fascinated by that. And I'm going to have a team who are going to want to understand it. But then the other half of me felt like, very isolated this isn't no one understands this no one knows it and maybe like maybe actually the, the medical team are just going to go well you know we see these so rarely all right we'll try it and I think even when you and I have spoken when we spoke last time you know I understand I am a bit of an experiment you know like I am a bit like there's a lot of stuff with me that my team have never done before so how does data around people like me living with these rare cancers like how does that actually get recorded and how useful is it and you know am I right to feel like this really isolated minority that I feel like I'm a bit of a novelty that I'll wear off after a while <laughs> generally patients when they're diagnosed with a rare cancer this is a very very common feeling that it's a very lonely and somewhat daunting experience you know i mentioned you know your gp hasn't really seen it before you go you see your gp they're doing a doctor google at the same time as you you know there's really no one else that you can talk to to have a shared experience there's not much out there in google nobody really knows what you're going through so all these things are actually you know quite common 
And I think if we take the parallels in the medical and scientific arena, it's pretty much the same thing. And the only way that we can actually achieve this is working together on the national and international level, especially for some of these really ultra rare cancer types where you may only get five cases, for example, in the UK per year. You don't have enough evidence with five patients, it's as you say, it's on a case-by-case basis, you are literally an experiment. So the good news is for many rare cancers, uh, we like working with each other as a community, and that's the only way to get things done. So and this can be done in two ways. One is through what we call retrospective collection of data. So we basically, at each of our centers, nationally, internationally, go through for the last decade or two decades, how many cases do we have, how it is, treated surgically? How were they treated using what drugs? What were the treatment outcomes? And we build up the evidence and pull together all the data from different institutions and try and get to some consensus. Which are the drugs that work? Which are the drugs that didn't work? Which are the surgical procedures that worked? You know, and, and so on and so forth. And then there is the the second bit, which is the prospective registry. So this idea that, okay, that's all the previous stuff. What do we do from you know now on moving forward? And so there are a lot of registry-based efforts where we're actively collecting from patients who come in a whole series of baseline information, treatment information, and harmonize this across Europe and US so that we get a, a database of information that we can use. I guess the other bit to say is that in Europe uh, and, for example, in the UK, there are also we are, we are nationalized healthcare systems. So there is data there. It's just how you then get the data out the uh, system. And um, depending on how the diagnosis is coded, you can work with entities like uh, Public Health England to get patient demographic data, treatment information. It's not extensive, but you can get some of this information. There's some limited outcome data as well. And we are starting to do this in, in some of the disease types that I work on where, you know, able to pull out data from Public Health England, actually see what are the trends are for the past two decades, uh, patient survival increasing, how has treatment paradigms changed with improvements in research and so on and so forth. Okay. And then, so in, in a similar way, when it comes to data and research, drug trials, mm. that's your department as well, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, how, we work, how... go ahead. Yeah, we, I was going to say, we work very closely with our clinical colleagues at the Royal Marston to design trials and, and things like that. Yeah. So again like in a nutshell i mean how does the decision to go ahead with a drug trial come about how do you decide okay this drug is ready now to put into trial and then how is it carried out we routinely break it up into i guess two parts the preclinical work so as, as its name suggests before the before it goes into clinical trial that's all the laboratory-based experiments in the dish, going into mouse models, for instance, to show that the drug is working, that it is safe, there's no toxicity associated with that, and it looks like it's doing what it says on the tin, basically, at least in the lab. And then once you've convinced ourselves that it works, and then we obviously have to convince the companies to want to partner with us, and that's a separate discussion altogether, but you have to get the drugs from the companies. Then we go into the process of evaluating these uh, drugs in 
in patients and there's usually typically a three-stage process and that's why it takes so long it's phase one phase two phase three phase one is where you basically test safety especially if it's a completely new drug you want to first assess if it's going to be safe in patients so they do different doses different durations different cycles to understand what are the effects once they've established a particular safe dose it then goes into phase two which is a bigger population in your disease type of interest, and that's to test for effectiveness in a still relatively small cohort. Is it going to work? So once you've established safety, you test for effectiveness. And then if there is a signal in the phase two, a substantial population of patients who respond to the drug, we then go to phase three. And this is where the huge investment is. In many cases, we are talking about hundreds of patients we basically, in many cases, compare the new drug with what is the current standard of care. Does the new drug work better than what is currently given to patients? And only if that's shown to be the case, then that gets submitted to the FDA. Which but how do you define what's better treatment? Yeah, I mean, there are several metrics, and I should say that this is a multidisciplinary effort. So, you know, it's not just about doctors. There are a lot of statisticians involved, trial managers, really trying to understand, you know, because it's not just about does it shrink your tumor, right? It's also about can you tolerate the side effects, you know? Uh, how much uh, of it, to quote, to quote you, Paul, how much of a dirty drug is it? Because you told exactly. me that untractinib is a dirty drug. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, my God. Okay, so, yeah, how dirty is it, I guess? Yeah, so so it's always always a, a cost. It's what's the toxicity, what are the side effects, and what's the effectiveness. And for different disease types, to be completely honest, there are different, I guess, standards for a disease where the outcomes are just so bad. Even a benefit of two months or three months is a big deal, right? Whereas there are some diseases now where, you know, that we have seen improvements over the last 20 years where now we're talking about survival in, in years, five to 10 years, then maybe the, you know, we're, you need higher bar in terms of what you would need to get a drug approved versus, let's say, toxicity or other effects. So, um, so there's no clear cut, you know, that's the number we want to see, but it needs to demonstrate to the FDA or EMA that, you know, there is a significant benefit to patients to be what we term as practice changing. So it's going to change current clinical management of patients. It's interesting because with ontrectinib, which is my cancer treatment, you know, I came off that 10 days before the surgery. Um, there was questions with that. You know, my surgeon wanted two weeks. My oncologist wanted a week. So I think they met in the middle with 10 days. But obviously, my surgeon was concerned. How was I going to bleed? How was I going to mm. how was I going to heal and recover? And then, you know, the total time I was off on trectinib was six weeks. And almost instantly when I started again, I felt better. Now, I don't know whether that was a psychological thing. But, you know, the other thing, of course, when you're going through surgery and recovery is you're, well, in my case, I still had the cancer. So I was suddenly very vulnerable. But that's what's interesting when you talk about the toxicity, you're kind of weighing it up. You know, I stayed off it to go in for the radioactive iodine because Kate Newbold felt that that was too much toxicity, but the iodine didn't really have the impact. So I might try it again on the ontrectinib. So as I've already said, I continue to be this kind of data and experiment. I think increasingly trials are incorporating not just how good the response was, but also what we call patient reporter outcomes. So, you know, 
things like you know what are the side effects can you tolerate the side effects you know what's your quality of life uh, and accumulating this data as well and, and regulators are taking that information into account as well just you know to address some of the points that you mentioned that it's not just about whether the drug works of course we all want the drug works but if it's at the expense of a patient's quality of life i think that needs to be weighed up as well mm, and i have to say I've, i feel very fortunate to be on ontrectinib because it just, I can live a pretty normal, active mm -hmm. life, which is mm -hmm. amazing. So what does the future look like? I guess this is quite a sensitive question for me in particular. We talked about this before off podcast, but, you know, I was always told right from the off by Prof Popat, this is palliative care, you mm -hmm. know, which brings up lots of different connotations for lots of different people. But ultimately what that means is, I need to be on this treatment or a form of this treatment for the rest of my life. And I know that there is a shelf life for me personally. And you and I have talked about, and so have Prof Popat and I talked about the alternatives. Why might I have been given ontrectinib before the alternatives? And what might the future look like? I also said to you off the pod, maybe I'll have an injection and it will just turn off the Ross 1 gene for the rest of my life. You know, I'm a bit of a optimist. So yeah, what does it look like? There's lots of questions, sorry. Yeah, so I was going to say, as I said, you know, if we look back 20 years ago, what we are doing now sounds like science fiction. So I wouldn't, you know, it's good to imagine what could be the future. And in some ways, scientists are motivated by those sorts of ideas. I think there's a lot of momentum now. And I think that there are two big areas really to, I guess, tackle what you've just mentioned, which is, you know, the issue of drug resistance. And this is a very big problem for pretty much every drug that's out there. And there are a number of ways to overcome it. Some are a bit more classical. So can we identify new chemistry or new types of molecules to be able to target drug resistance mutations? So for example, if you go on drug A, let's say tractinate for a while, the ROS1 gene accumulates mutations, which then make it less able to bind to the drug and therefore the drug doesn't work as well. Is there new chemistry or new molecules that can able, are still able to bind to that mutant version of ROS? So that's one way of doing it. The other way is combinations. Uh, obviously, that usually comes with some sort of toxicity. So if, let's say, the, the mechanisms of resistance has uh, less to do with ROS1, but as I said just now, maybe there are alternative pathways that are helping the cell survive, whether environmental or intrinsic, could we use combination of entractinib, for example, ROS inhibitor with something else to suppress those signals together to overcome resistance. And I guess it's, it's not that science fiction. You mentioned this idea of injecting something and then making the ROS1 cells disappear. There is an entire new I guess, field of chemical biology now uh, where people are developing clever ways of actually exploiting the cells, let's say, rubbish disposal, disposal system to get rid of cancer genes. So this idea of what we call protex or, or proteolysis targeting chimera. So these are molecules which have been designed to harness the bodies uh, rubbish disposal systems to tag genes whichever genes you want it doesn't have to be a cancer gene and direct it to be destroyed by the cell so it's not so crazy <laughs> oh and the God, and the uh, mind-blowing 
And the first molecules are starting going to trials now. So I wouldn't be surprised if in a couple of years, we start seeing some of these emerge out on the other end. We talked about phase one, phase two, phase three. They're in phase one at the moment. But, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they emerge out at the other end and we will get some wow. drug approval. So, yeah, I think science constantly amazes me and research and that's why we do research and so yeah I mean I say you know don't hold your breath something's going to happen so that feels very positive Paul that's brilliant I mean I could chat so much more and it's and also I know I said this but I I'm so willing to help with any research or even any questions because you know I feel like I don't have a choice what choice do I have of course I I I want you to work on the Ross one with the hobnail and whatever it takes but like I'm here and I know you're also here and it's been great that we've connected and um, absolutely no it's it's a pleasure Um, and you know it's great to chat with you and also learn from your own experiences which as I said really enriches you know what we end up doing in the lab good very happy to thank you so much paul it's been great to chat to you thanks so much for coming on talking with cancer pleasure thank you so that was professor paul hoang of the institute of cancer research i could have spoken to him for a lot longer and hopefully we will speak again and what's great is that i've got access to him i hope that you enjoyed listening to that Yeah, I think I take that positive mindset that there are studies and research and trials being done all the time in this area of what's called biomarker, mutating genes and genetic cancers, and that's changing. And I've made the point on here that the drug I take wasn't even available on the market until 2019. So there's a lot happening and there's a lot that I will stay positive about. And I will maintain so much hope that something's coming. I actually got an email back from Prof Popat this morning. Um, And given the week that I've had and the emotion and the realness. So Prof Popat wrote back to me. I said to him in the email, hi, Prof Popat, I hope you're well. I came across the attached on the Ross One group. Is it a potential option for me down the line if approved? Best, Katie. And he wrote, hi, Katie. Yep, could well be an option. We will have it in our portfolio at some stage in 2023. Best, Sanjay. And I forever remain hopeful. Thanks so much for listening this week. Thanks for bearing with me while it's just me solo plus guest. Yeah, I hope you continue to enjoy listening. If you want to reach out, Don't forget you can email me, hello at talkingwithcancer.com. That's hello at talkingwithcancer.com. I'm also on Instagram at talking underscore with cancer. I've also got a fundraising page, which is a team just giving page called Talking With Cancer Fund. And you can split donations or give to either Maggie's Centre or the Royal Marsden Hospital Cancer Charity. So if you like listening, I appreciate any donation that you can give. And I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>